Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our first show for 2018. Jim, if I was writing checks, I'd still be writing 2016 on them, but that's how it is. <laughs> okay, so a full year out of date. Okay, good. Well, again, who writes checks? Who writes, who writes checks? checks? There we days? go. Exactly. All right, Jim, I, I thought we would start the show off as a, a look back at some of the more memorable things that happened in 2017. Obviously, lots of Disney news. I thought we would go month by month and focus on maybe the one or two events that happened each month that were really notable and that are going to change the way that we look at Disney theme parks for the foreseeable future. And after that, let's finish up our Spectrum Magic show, which is part three of the two-part series of Spectrum Magic. There <laughs> we go. The increasingly inaccurately numbered uh, part three of a two-part series. No, that works for me. All right, let's start off with that with January uh, 2017. For me, the big news here was the first ever Festival of the Arts at Epcot. This was, let's face it, another festival in Epcot along the lines of Flower and Garden, Food and Wine, Holidays Around the World. This one was focusing on the Disney artists, though. Had some really interesting Mary Blair stuff mm-hmm. in it. I thought it was worthwhile. I had some good John Hench posters in there. I thought that was kind of the highlight of the exhibit. But it was, to me, a continuation of this, let's just keep these kiosks out and uh, sell as much food and alcohol as we can for Epcot. How did you feel about this? Well, remember, one of the other components of this was Disney Theatrical sending talent down to perform on the American Garden stage. So Disney Theatrical loves to get down to the parks when it can. In fact, whenever they can get yet another unit of the company down here hyping itself, everybody in Synergyland is happy. Remember, not all that long ago, when we heard that they were considering creating an event for January, it was a future world-based event. It was going to be much more science of discovery. In fact, I remember talking with somebody at ABC about they were going to come down in one of the empty spaces in the old Communicore area. They were going to shoot battle bots there. <laughs> but that completely fell off the table, the science and technology celebration. And for much the same reasons you cited, that they wanted to use the pre-existing infrastructure, and that included all of those open kitchens that they've created for food and wine and for flower and garden. So I have to wonder if somewhere further on down the line after this supposedly reinvention of future world, the, the front porch, as they say, we'll see them circle back on that idea. What was the big uh, thing for you in uh, in January, if it wasn't uh, Festival of the Arts? Or was it Festival of the Arts? Well, for me, it's always chess pieces that can be moved around the board. Me personally, I think the Iron Man experience that opened at Hong Kong that now is supposedly headed for the Marvel redo of DCA. Wow. All right. Let's move on to February. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, the big news, there are a couple of things, actually. Yep. One was this was the long-delayed opening of Rivers of Light mm-hmm. at Animal Kingdom. Finally, it came to pass, although the debut was not what we had expected when we originally came out. But, you know, I've talked about this. It was cut down, drastically reduced from what we had originally anticipated. There were technical issues that plagued this nighttime entertainment offering at the Animal Kingdom for, what, six, eight, nine months? Oh, Almost yeah. a year. Yeah. They were three weeks up, and then they announced the Jungle Book show that came in as sort of the patch on a bad tire. And yeah. the infrastructure that was put in place for this show is great. I mean, the theater and the physical plant, so to speak, 
watching the finished show. In fact, I've been a couple times and watched the audience, and there's just there's a certain level of confusion that settles in after a while. It's like, oh, okay, I get it. The floats are floating, and the boats are boating, and it's like, well, when is something going to happen? It is. It's a slow-moving extravaganza. Yeah, and... Let's remember that before there was Illuminations, there was Laser Phonics Fantasy. They, you know, there were a number of shows that, you know, it's like, oh, that didn't work, that didn't work, and then you have a hit. So we just have to wait to see what follows Rivers of Light. But again, just to confirm, that's a 50th anniversary thing. We won't see that come online till 2021, and that's largely for bookkeeping. They have to write off the costs of producing this show and all of the additional costs from trying to fix this show. And I just wonder when those all those little floating lanterns are going to show up on eBay. <laughs> the other big announcements that we saw in February were plans for Caribbean Beach and Coronado Springs redos. And we've talked about this extensively. These are bringing DVC concepts to both the resorts. But not only that, and we'll talk about this more, but some interesting new transportation options. Why do you think Disney went to the moderates for the next series of their expansions when there was still at least one deluxe hotel, the Yacht Club, that had not gone DVC to this point? Why do you think they decided to, to pick moderates? Was it just that there was more capacity and therefore more things to sell at the moderates? I think in each case, they laser focused in on very specific needs. I mean, for example, with Coronado Springs, they have that giant convention facility. They found that one of the things that was prohibiting sales there was mm-hmm. the very fact that these days, especially when CEOs or senior executives of, of a company travel, they want those special facilities. And they realized that if they built this tower, which again, to cater to a certain set of clientele, they could address this specific need and sort of re-energize this convention facility. Conversely, with the Caribbean Beach, given that Epcot is right across the street and the belief is that they just have not leveraged the connection. I mean, this is the resort that's closest to Epcot, which again, as we mentioned just a moment or two ago between Food and Wine and Festival of the Arts and Flower and Garden, has become a place where people build their vacations around going, I want to go there for Food and Wine. And so when you look at the tower that's actually being built to face into the park, so that guests staying there can then have the spectacular view from the restaurant that's going to be on the top of the, and again, coming the new spectacular for 2021. This is really all about creating a piece of connective tissue for that resort, for that specific theme park. On the other side of all of this construction at, at Caribbean, can you legitimately call this a modern anymore? Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. We talked about this a long time ago. We haven't revisited it in a while, but there's this idea, this rumor going around that Disney's current categories of hotels, values, moderates, deluxes, will be blurred once the Caribbean Beach and Coronado Springs come online, where within each hotel, you might see two vastly different categories of room. Mm. So you might see what used to be a moderate resort with what is ostensibly deluxe amenities and rooms at, at, at deluxe prices as well. And that there's a couple of things. One is it allows Disney to have the more expensive rooms based on location. Mm-hmm. You, you pointed out that Caribbean Beach is the closest resort to Epcot, mm-hmm. granted, but it's a moderate. So Disney can never charge deluxe prices. But now if they have deluxe rooms at the resort, they could charge deluxe prices. 
Yeah. A lot of the stuff that is in the works right now, and remember, we're about to slide into 2018, and in the theme park world, that's just minutes away from this once-in-a-lifetime 50th anniversary celebration where Disney anticipates that the world is going to return to Disney World. And they are making so many of these physical changes with the notion of people will come back to Disney World and they want to be ready to capture not only everyone who's been there before, but those five people who've hesitated, who haven't come. (laughs) And they want a brand new, shiny, easier to use, navigate resort ready for that year. Speaking of navigation, this leads me into my March story. Now, March and April are generally not very big mm-hmm. months for Disney making announcements. They're dealing with spring break crowds. They're dealing with Easter crowds. They're not going to do or introduce a whole lot of changes during these couple of months, The busy, some of the busiest of the year. But they did actually start a one fairly large project in March of 2017 that I find interesting. They started construction of bypass ramps and alternative paths in the Magic Kingdom parking lot. And I know a parking lot doesn't sound like it's that interesting of a thing, but the way that they're redoing the Magic Kingdom parking lot is fascinating for two reasons. One, it's going to give them a north entrance to the Magic Kingdom where they don't have one right now. And right now, virtually all of the traffic comes south along World Drive. This is going to allow them to take traffic north past the contemporary and past Space Mountain and bring it into the Magic Kingdom. But the other interesting thing that it's going to do is it's going to allow guests who stay at the Magic Kingdom resorts to bypass the toll booths. I think everybody listening here has at one time or another had to go through the toll booths and then immediately swerve into the right lane to go down to one of the Magic Kingdom resorts. That now is a thing of the past because Disney's introducing a set of flyover ramps, mm-hmm. the Magic Kingdom, which allow you to get to your resorts that much faster. I got to believe too, Jim, a lot of this is due to the increased use of ride-sharing services for people getting dropped off at the Contemporary. They just bypass the toll booths and go. No, absolutely. Especially in our Uber-centric world, the fact that these folks can just get that much quicker to the Contemporary, the, the Shades of Green, you know, Polynesian Village. This really is about getting folks to their hotels that much faster so they can start opening their wallets. I've actually heard... 2022, 2023. But you know that famous pinch point where you, as you're driving to the Contemporary and the road narrows to just two lanes because you have to go under the water bridge? Yeah. Supposedly, there is a six-month speed construction project where they're going to actually shut down that road and expand that roadway to, I want to say, six lanes? Six lanes under the waterway? Yeah, three lanes on either side, the equivalent of a breakdown lane. That's been an issue, I guess, especially now with so many people coming back and forth to the various resorts, the buses, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, if you look all over property, I mean, for example, Buena Vista Drive and how they've expanded that and the multiple lanes around Disney Springs. I mean, this is all about getting them into places. So much, if you look around property, for example, that flyover that's under construction now next to ESPN Wild World of Sports, it's going to take people off of that exit and feed them directly into the parking lot of Disney Hollywood Studios. Also designed to get people into that park that much faster and get them off a of world drive. Right. If your projection of everybody in the world coming to Orlando for 2021 mm-hmm. is true, they're going to need 
this kind of capacity mm-hmm. in infrastructure yep. for 2021. And, you know, beyond that, because you know, hopefully the idea is that people who visit in 2021 love the new stuff so much that they keep coming back again and again. So these kind of investments in infrastructure and transportation are definitely worthwhile. So the downside, Len, mm-hmm. you and I have talked previously about all the work that's going on in I-4. Oh, Here's just doing all this work to make it easier for people who are on property to get around. And evidently, I was just looking at the most recent construction schedule and evidently things have slipped so badly it looks like the bulk of the expansion work that's being done outside of disney property on four will be happening in 2020 2021 the bulk of it is going to be happening during the 50th yeah oh good planning there florida yeah. DOT. all right <laughs> nice job i guess if they had made the original schedule we would have seen 2019, 2020, and they would have had everything done in time for the 50th. But I guess the schedule's so slipped at this point that it, it just looks like as the whole world is trying to get into the resort onto the wonderful new wide roads that'll speed around Disney, they're going to have to get through something that's going to look just like the outside of Universal right now. Wow. Disney can't be happy about that with the DOT. But, you know, once you get on property, it'll be fine. Jim, a quick question for you. Mm. Which happens first? I-4 construction completed, Bob Iger retires. Ooh. Ooh, good question. All right, let's moving, moving on. There we go. <laughs> I don't have anything big in April happening. Do you, Jim? April is, this is when they're frantically uh, getting ready to open Guardians of the Galaxy at Disneyland. In fact, what's kind of funny is during this period, while these folks are frantically trying to get the six drop profiles for this redo of Tower of Terror and deal with all of the horrible negative press that they were getting because they were shutting down California's Tower of Terror, this is the moment they hit them up. Oh, by the way, we'd like to do a Halloween profile. Would that be hard to do? When we jump to May, we'll talk about Guardians there. When you think about they delivered that amazing attraction in less than six months. It's a real tribute to them and the team. But yeah, in April, there was nobody sleeping in that building. They were rushing to get this thing done, and, and they delivered the goods. We'll talk about it in May, but it's one of the most popular attractions in all of the Disneyland resorts. You could debate whether Reindeer Springs Racers is more popular across all demographics, mm-hmm. but certainly for young adults, teens, and you know, even parents, it's the number one or number two ranked attraction in Disneyland. Let's move on to May. Of course, the big news here is Pandora mm-hmm. opening in the Animal Kingdom. We'll talk about that. But let's also not forget that uh, the Magic Kingdom also uh, replaced Wishes this month with Happily Ever After. Yeah. I think that was one that you know, we talked about Rivers of Light opening in Animal Kingdom in February mm-hmm. to change two nighttime spectaculars within four months of each other in, in Disney's uh, Sort of unexpected. This one, I think, happily ever after, we saw this together. We both raved about it, right? Yeah. My only complaint about this particular show is I often don't know where to look, which is not necessarily a bad thing. If anything, it makes you sort of circle back to the park, just sort of like, oh, yeah, it's a fireworks show. I should be looking up as opposed to staring at all the projections in the castle or for that matter, noticing that look what they're doing with the trees. The level of detail projections and lighting in this is is spectacular. I, I loved it. I think we both raved about it when it opened. I completely agree. I guess to be fair, if things had gone the way they were supposed to go with Rivers of Light. That would have opened in 2016. This would have been 2017. Oh, right. Yeah. They wouldn't have been the unfortunate, hey, let's compare these two. And it's like, oh, that's not fair. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, by itself, Rivers of Light is not bad. It's slow paced. Mm-hmm. The people who like it really like it. 
in terms of ratings, it gets, I think, a little over four stars out of five mm-hmm. on our unofficial guide ratings, which isn't bad. Mm-hmm. It is the lowest rated among the four nighttime spectaculars, though, or what used to be the four, sorry, the four nighttime spectaculars. Yeah, it, it just suffers in comparison to the things. But on its own, it's fine mm-hmm. for what it is. But I, I do like Happily Ever After quite a bit. Yep. I think it's one of those shows that you can see multiple times mm-hmm. and get something new out of it each time. And again, they've Disney's shown the ability to update it. With new segments, I think that's uh, I think it's very very good. All right, let's let's talk about uh, Pandora opening in May because this was the sort of the big event for for Disney for the year. What did you think of it? I've been back three and four different times at this point, and I have to admit, initially I didn't get Pandora. You look at something like the Rivers Ride and Navi River Journey. Navi River Journey. It's one of these things where it's like you come around the corner and it's like, that's it. Don't get me wrong. Impressive AA figure, some wonderful individual effects, but it's like, that's really short and small. And and at the same time with Flight of Passage upstairs, I mean, uh, for me, I don't know these characters. I don't know this world. I'm not necessarily connecting, but... Again, I have to admit here, my opinion is very much in the minority. I have family members and friends who just blither about Flight of Passage, just short of a religious experience. And the weird thing is, you know what, what impresses me about Pandora are the things that people never notice. Like, if you come along the path from the Legend of the Lion King theater, or for that matter, when you, you come over the bridge on next to Tiffin's, there's mm-hmm. this wall of sound effect that they do to sort of create this curtain of sound. It, it's like heavy insect noise, but it actually creates this sort of wall of sound that keeps the rest of the park out. Yeah, I thought that was particularly amazing. When we visited together in November, mm. the audio was something that I specifically tried to pick up on. And yeah, it's fantastic. And plus, it also changes with the time of day, right? It does. It does. But who's sitting there going, wow, honey, that audio curtain is amazing. But I guess now that we live in the world where Disney owns Fox, or excuse me, in 18 months when they finally closed the deal, But I was talking with a friend about how thrilled James Cameron is about this because it's like, oh, yeah, it's like, cool. You know, now he actually has a stick to beat Disney with in regards to it's like, I I guess Cameron is kind of upset that he had been promised when they made this deal with Disney that as they were constructing the Florida Avatar, they were supposed to also be getting work on the one for Tokyo Disney Seas. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, actually, where this gets kind of intriguing, you, you may have heard over like just the past month or so, the Oriental Land Company has been talking to all of its partners about the third part that they're planning. I have heard that. Yeah. And that evidently, initially, there was a hesitation about, well, I don't know if you could sell Avatar as an island or as a port. And that was the whole point of it was going to go into Port Disney, the Disney Seas Park. But now it's like, oh, well, if we're doing a third park, absolutely. Especially if the Disney company actually owns the Avatar characters. So Yeah, less than licensing, more in profitability. So you think they're going to bring that to Tokyo? Yeah, that now seems to be the plan. That it's supposedly going to be one of the quote-unquote anchors of this project. And given that now that they have both Avatar and the Galaxy's Edge project... Mm. That's what's kind of intriguing about this whole concept, that it's a Disney sci-fi park. Evidently, there are four lands that have been sort of prototyped for this thing. There's a Galaxy's Edge, Batu type city. 
that would be married to an outside land for Avatar. And then there would be a Tron coaster land kind of anchored by a Tron element. And I guess just to bring this full circle to make sure that there's a kid-friendly element, there'd be mm-hmm. a Buzz Lightyear, sort of a fantasy land. But it's Disney's first official sci-fi park, which if you know your Tokyo Disneyland history, there was a time when their Tomorrowland was actually going to get swapped out for a land called Sci-Fi City, which would be sort of the celebration of all things sci-fi. That fell off the table and has somehow come back, changed from a land to a whole park. It's because no, no idea ever dies at Disney. We've said it, we've said it before, we'll say it again. Yeah. So watch this space, folks. You mentioned the Tron development in, in Tokyo, but that was one of the big announcements for June at D23, right? That uh, the Magic Kingdom in Orlando was going to get a Tron coaster. Yeah. The weird thing is you and I had heard this from multiple sources over the past 18 months. The notion was that the Tron coaster that had been introduced as part of the Shanghai Disneyland Park in 2016, Mm -hmm. had been so popular that they were looking to bring it stateside. In fact, not just in Walt Disney World, but also at Disneyland. We've always heard it was going to go in Tomorrowland, right? Right. There was talk of building it over where the Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor Comedy Club is. There was talks of taking out Carousel of Progress. There was talk of taking out the Tomorrowland Speedway. Yeah. We knew it was going somewhere in Tomorrowland. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that surprised me the most, Jim, was the location yep. that Disney picked for this. They're not taking out any other ride. They're building it behind the Speedway and to the left of Space Mountain. So a whole new attraction without losing anything else. I think that was the most surprising thing to me. I have to admit, especially given the conversations lately, about Carousel of Progress, how badly dated the show is, and really they need to do something to address that. But the weird thing is that if you look at the decisions that are being made at the kingdom, whether it's adding that theater behind Main Street, and in fact, that was one of the big announcements for July at D23. That was literally the uh, the next bullet point on my list, so go ahead. Okay. <laughs> this is all about you can't take any capacity out of our most popular park. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So looking at it as a capacity play, yep. I understand both of those decisions because, yeah, you mean Disney got rid of uh, closed Stitch's Great Escape. Mm-hmm. And that was not handling many hundreds of people an hour. But you're right. If they were to close something like Carousel of Progress, which can handle you know more than 1,000 people an hour, or if they were to replace the Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor Comedy Club, which, again, handles thousands of people an hour, mm-hmm. if they were to take out that for a Tron coaster, it's basically a wash in terms of capacity. But by adding more things, Mm -hmm. this Tron coaster, the Magic Kingdom Theater, yeah, then they can handle the crowds that are going to happen during the 50th anniversary. By the way, did you see that in the last couple days of December, Disney filed plans with the state showing the exact location of the the theater for the Magic Kingdom? It was exactly where we think it was going to be. It's behind the Main Street Theater. Yeah, and I have to tell you, on behalf of a lot of the folks who park... I was going to say who park there, yeah. Yeah, they're not happy about this, but what are you going to do? I mean, this is more about servicing the guests than it is the cast members. Right. One of the weird things about building in this specific area at the park is you do, in fact, have to take into consideration what impact is going to have on the utility doors. Right. If people are a little concerned when this project begins construction about why they're not seeing things go vertical for a while. There's a reason between Florida's low water levels and what it had been 
previously built there 45 years ago. I mean, this is going to be kind of a, a logistical challenge, folks. So, Speaking of logistical challenges, the thing that I was surprised about with the location of the theater mm-hmm. is that it's going to impact the race routes for the Magic Kingdom. So Disney runs, obviously, the half marathon, the marathon, a series of events, January, I think, uh, February, March, pretty, pretty much six months out of the year, they're running races in the Magic Kingdom. And traditionally, the way that you get into the Magic Kingdom is by going down World Drive, past the Contemporary, making a left, and going through this back entrance and coming out between Tony's Town Square and the hat shop on Main Street. And that's now will be a construction zone. Yeah. And so I'm I'm moderately intrigued to see where Disney's going to route people for these races, because the races start in a couple of weeks as this construction goes on. Are they going to route them through the entrance of the Magic Kingdom and past the tap soils? Well, and, and again, it, it's only you know six or seven days a year in which this is going to be an, an inconvenience. Well, now remember, though, that we've just seen in California that because of the construction that's actually going to go on there with the new five-star, yeah. and that coupled with the, the fact that Galaxy's Edge is entering the crucial finishing, say, a lot of the buildings yeah. and that sort of thing, they actually put their incredibly lucrative race Disney run program on hold for a couple of years. But, you know, I think that was the right decision because I ran the Disneyland half Mm -hmm. in the middle of DCA's redo. Mm -hmm. And they ran most of that route through that park with nothing but green construction walls. It was the least memorable of any Disney race I've I've ever run. It makes sense for them not to to do that. I understand that. That's the other thing to take into consideration, folks, particularly if you're going to be looking at races on Disney World property between... 2018, 2019, 2020, but the focus is on getting ready for the 50th, and this is going to be a tough couple of years for the runners. On the other hand, it means Disney World Entertainment is going to have to work that much harder to make this entertaining, given the rooting away from all of the stuff that people actually enjoy seeing, because they're in the process of finishing and building it. I will say to our listeners, if uh, if you run the Disneyland half or full in January, the next couple of weeks, tell us what the route looked like. Send us an email and we'd love to hear what the course takes you through. That'd be fantastic. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, let's move on to July. Mm-hmm. For me, the big news here was the opening of the uh, Wilderness Lodge's Copper Creek Canyon DVC section. And you and I actually recorded a show live there yeah. soon after it opened in one of the cabins. What did you think of that? Oh, it's a spectacular addition to what's already one of my favorite, probably my favorite resort at Walt Disney World. I have to admit, like every faux forest thing that Disney builds, it's going to have to grow into its greenery. Yeah. It's a couple of years away from looking the way that the horticulture department would want it to look. But we stayed in the units that were on facing the contemporary of the canal yeah. space there. I'm wondering what the view on the other side was like, but no, it's, it's a wonderful addition. But let's remember that this was also the month that we had our D23 Expo and Bob Chapek standing on stage confirming so many of the things we talked about. It was a little bizarre. It's like, yeah, Len and Jim were right about that. Len and Jim were right about that. <laughs> there were a couple of announcements there. We'll talk about the Skyliner coming up in August. Yep. But uh, there were a couple of things there that I think were mildly surprising for me. Mm-hmm. One was this idea that Disney was going to partner with Lyft on minivans. Yeah. I did not expect. Yeah. We heard something about a ride-sharing program, but... The idea that Disney would create a couple dozen customized minivans and paint them red and white polka dotted and call them literally minivans, M-I-N-N-I-E vans, 
to start their own transportation thing is a network within Walt Disney World. That was surprising to me. One of the things that happened in the same window, do you remember the very, very short-lived direct bus links? Right, yeah. The lifespan of a, of a TT fly. There we yeah, go. It's a park-to-park direct bus service for, was it $15, $25, something like that? There we go. I mean, on paper... That sounded like a wonderful idea, and, and it certainly sounded like a revenue stream that would be worth developing for the company, and the guests just didn't embrace it. On the other hand, yeah. my understanding is that the minivans, you know, just the combination of they look like they're fun to ride in, and they're hard not to miss when they're rolling around property, they're evidently doing very, very well. And when we initially heard about this project, we heard the end game was the self-driving cars on property. And as of... Totally going to happen. Totally going to happen, Jim. Okay. But the minivan is sort of the half step to that. And you've done this, right? I have. And? And I think it's fantastic. I look at it in terms of cost and convenience. Mm -hmm. In terms of cost, it's about the same as an Uber XL. So, you know, Uber has different levels of service. The least expensive one is essentially carpooling where you're in a van with other people and they get dropped off first, then you get dropped off. That's the least expensive one. Then there's traditional UberX where it's direct point to point. You're only the only people in the car and that'll handle like four people. But if you need more people or you need a minivan, you've got lots of luggage to carry. Uber has this thing called Uber XL. And there's a corresponding version in Lyft too, where you get a bigger car, a Chevy Tahoe or something like that, mm-hmm. a Ford Expedition. And that is what Disney's minivan is comparable to in terms of capacity, in terms of cost. So if you've got a family of four or six, or you've got a lot of luggage, or you, you need to move a lot of things around Disney, you use a minivan for that because it's basically the same price as a Lyft or an Uber. But the advantage is it drops you off in places that Uber and other cars and buses aren't available to get to. So in the Magic Kingdom, it'll drop you off at the bus stop, not at the TTC. And if you're going to, let's say, the Hoopty Doo Review, it'll drop you off at Pioneer Hall, not at the bus stop. So you get closer access to where you want to go in certain cases using Disney's minivans than you do any other form of transportation. And I think that's the big selling point for this. No argument there. And I love the fact that it gives you a Disney-themed experience, but then delivering the convenience of Uber. I'm surprised that there are only 25 of these right now, 25, 27 of them. And you would think that Disney will rapidly expand this, you know, possibly doubling the size of the fleet. Mm-hmm. But the thing I'm concerned about goes back to the traffic problems that we talked about earlier. Yeah. If you look at what's happened in large cities, mm-hmm. New York, Philadelphia, Boston, the number of ride-sharing cars now is about double or triple the number of taxis that ever existed in those cities. So ironically, the ride-sharing programs that are designed to get people point-to-point faster have actually made traffic worse in the large cities in which it's been introduced into. And I'm concerned that that might happen at Disney World, that if they grow this too big, or if ride-sharing becomes the de facto mode of transportation over buses, you end up with gridlock. Well, if you've seen what's been going on on Buena Vista Drive around Disney Springs, between the flyovers and that sort of thing, they, like, what was oh, the, yeah. the phrase the friend at Disney said that basically they're giving the resort an angioplasty. <laughs> it's, it's bypasses everyone. Yes, I mean, it's just that the whole notion of there won't be a roadway in Disney World that isn't expanded in some way. One of the other things that they are looking at is when they get these self-driving cars, they anticipate they're going to have to have their own separate lanes. That's exactly what I had written down, that, that eventually there'll be a dedicated lane for self-driving cars. Mm-hmm. 
Because then you can control all kinds of things, right? You don't, they don't have to worry about interacting with the traffic. It's safer. It's easier to navigate. Mm-hmm. You could put sensors in the road. You could paint them pink if you wanted to, right? Yeah. Whatever, whatever you need to do for the, uh, the self-driving cars to make it easier. Yeah. By the way, I, uh, I was in California last week and I looked at one of the Tesla Model 3s with the self-driving capabilities on it. It was very interesting. I didn't get to drive it because it was parked, but I think those things are coming sooner rather than later. To the extent that Disney can control the road system in a way that other cities can't, I think you'll see it at Disney first. Now, speaking of transportation systems, though, I mean, among the many things that Bob Chapek confirmed and that we'd been following up until this point is the Skyliner. Right. Construction on this started in August. So let's talk about that. Yeah. And the very last time I was at the resort, they were putting the footings in, what, at the studio? Getting that into the system ready. And there was the work being done out between Pop Century and Art of Animation. And yep. I have to admit, I'm standing back at this thing and I still don't entirely get it. I understand long range This is just the interim step that it runs back and forth between the studios and Epcot and takes us through the Caribbean, which is about to become a very significant resort. And there will eventually be the outward growth that will take people over to Animal Kingdom and that sort of thing in the Coronado. Mm -hmm. From capacity to, this is Florida, the lightning strike capital of the world. I remember when the Skyway at the Magic Kingdom would have to shut down because of weather-related issues, but you weren't transporting people to hotels, just running inside a park. I am hopeful that this will work, but I don't get this. I guess I'll have to see it in operation or put the shoes on of a guest and try this as somebody who's on vacation would. I was talking with somebody about the extra expense that they've had to add to the Ratatouille project just because the Skyliner is going to come in on a sight line that this has to be attractive from the back as well. Oh, right. We've talked about this. The way that the Skyliner is going to approach Epcot from Caribbean Beach is going through the back of the boardwalk area, sort of bisecting the boardwalk in Epcot, landing at International Gateway. Yeah, the, the amount of work that they have to do on the back end of Epcot to make it look not horrible, not like an industrial park, is amazing. Yeah. It's one of these things where it's like when you're somebody who's just trying to build a ride, just get it done with your normal budget. It's like, oh, and we have to make the back of the building look attractive. And it's like, thank you. Really, I enjoy these (laughs) last minute challenges you throw on my lap. (laughs) By the way, this uh, skyliner that you're building from Caribbean Beach to uh, International Gateway, you've got to make France look pretty too. (laughs) I think the skyliner is going to do a couple of things. One Mm -hmm. is there's a wow factor. Mm -hmm associated with the Skywater. You just look at it and you know that that is something creative that no other theme park really has. But I think this too, Disney's got to be fairly certain that this thing is going to work because that's a huge infrastructure oh, God, project. Yes. It's not like like the bus project with the in, the bus to bus park service that they tried. If that didn't work, they could move the buses to another park the next day, mm-hmm. right? But here, you're buying gondolas, you're putting up pylons, you're rerouting traffic. I mean, you're basically taking it. It's a two-year construction project. Disney has to be very, very certain that the Skyliner is going to succeed. So that's where I think that we're, you know, we might be doubting this a little too much. I think it's going to be fantastic. And the other thing it does, Jim, Mm -hmm. is it gets people off the road. So again, if you're anticipating traffic for the 50th anniversary and you're anticipating self-driving cars, the more traffic you can get off the road, the easier those two things become for you. Okay. And the Skyway is not 100% of the solution, but it's part of the solution. 
So it does a couple of other things, right? It, it looks pretty. It's got a wow factor. You drive people to those resorts who want to try it, and you get people off the roads. I think it's a win-win for Disney there. Remember when that survey went out about the Star Wars Hotel, and everybody was like, no, that can't possibly be real. And here's Chapek on stage confirming that, yep, we got such a strong response to that survey, and that this is an idea that we're definitely pursuing not just in Orlando. Mm-hmm. To circle back to what they're talking about for Tokyo Disneyland, that what's kind of interesting about the version of Batu and Galaxy's Edge that's going to be built there is the hotel is part of opening day. But the whole notion of this hotel services one story, I mean, you know, or one franchise, and, yeah. and the very thing of people staying at the hotel who will be wandering around Galaxy's Edge that will have special missions that they'll be running and individual cast members that they'll interact with. And it's a business model that is such a departure from every other hotel at Walt Disney World. I was in Las Vegas last week mm-hmm. and I was going through the Win and the Encore, mm-hmm. which are hotels that Steve Wynn famously built after Bellagio, mm-hmm. when Steve Wynn said, you know what, theming is dead. And I'm going, <laughs> so I'm walking through, I'm walking through the Encore, I'm walking through the uh, the Wynn, mm-hmm. got this whole theming is dead thing in my head. And, and I, I thought exactly that with the Star Wars Hotel. It's, not only is Disney betting on that not happening, mm-hmm. they're betting on literally the exact opposite yeah. of, that, <laughs> of that happening. They're not only theming is dead, but theming is the future again. Yeah. I find that amazing. It's the, one of the ways in which there are a lot of ways in which Vegas, Las Vegas and Disney World are the same, mm. but this is one way in which the two trends are vastly different. No, I agree. I agree. And which I guess now brings us to August, and we got to say goodbye to Ellen's Energy Adventure. And I don't know if you you saw all of the amazing photos that showed up online the day that Ellen's Energy Adventure closed, and you know all those people piled into the last sets of vehicles, and then coincidentally the attraction broke so people were forced to get out and wander around and take pictures of dinosaurs and and that sort of thing if ever there was a fitting into a ride Jim. yeah in fact you know I, I did get confirmed from the folks who were working the attraction and we break it here <laughs> that very same month we had the new version of mission space open the more kid-friendly flyover of the planet which have you been on that yet have you done that i have i really enjoyed that I mean, I get that it, it's not the thrill-centric, let's put a piano on your chest while you take off, of, you know, version headed to Mars, but I actually mm. really enjoyed that. I liked it better than the original version of it as well. It, for me, it was much less prone to motion sickness on it. Mm. Even the uh, the green one sometimes would throw me the old version. This one I found pleasant. You know, it's the visuals are a little strange. Mm. Like if you're thinking about the actual route, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Or it didn't make a whole lot of sense at first, but I thought for what it was, it's a it's a nice update. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to see the variety, and I'm glad to see Disney maintaining new experiences for it. I think that's what I got out of it. You know, it might not be my favorite ride, but the fact that Disney's trying is credit to that. And speaking of new experiences, the other thing that JPEG announced, the dining in space restaurant that will be added to the Mission Space Complex. And I'm hearing they're looking to have that one open for 2019. If you consider that with what they're doing with the Star Wars virtual reality thing mm-hmm. that opened in December at Disney Springs, mm-hmm. I think you look at those as play tests yeah. for the Star Wars Hotel. Mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. No, I agree. I agree. This actually circles back to the very first iteration of the Space Pavilion for Epcot. The notion of you actually going to be able, able to look out to space as, in, from orbit. 
and just get the sense that you are, in fact, traveling around this planet. Again, here we, we circle back on this idea. It just it's such a nice surprise. All right, let's move on into uh, September, Jim. The big news for me here, uh, two things. Mm-hmm. Disney Quest closed. Yeah. Finally. Three years after it was dead, or five years after it was dead, it closed. Let's be honest here. 15 years after it was dead. Yeah. When, you know, the company stopped investing in the idea is 1999. Wow. That's a long time to play Miss Pac-Man. Yeah. When they initially announced the replacement, you had the NBA experience that was going to come in. And mm-hmm. then there was this kind of a year where it's just sort of like, you know, there was a, a real back and forth between Disney and the NBA because Disney's initial plan was, well, look, you know, we're finishing Disney Springs and we'd like you guys to go into the pre-existing building and we have a restaurant on the top floor and we have all this place. And, and the NBA was like, no, we want a brand new building. We want a brand new experience. And in the end, Disney blinked. Yeah, that was one of those things where, where Disney announced the NBA experience was coming and then turned around and decided to start negotiating with the NBA experience about what they were going to do. Yeah. It was strange in terms of its timing, but Disney Quest is demolished now mm. and it's official that Disney Springs is going to get an NBA experience. Still a little surprised by that choice, Yeah, but I understand. No, I get that. Let's remember also in this same window, we got the announcement that this is not a drill. Lanuba is closing. And in fact, just in the past week, we, we got confirmed that much in the style of the all Elvis show and the all Beatles show, that the Cirque du Soleil for Walt Disney World is going to be a celebration of Disney animation. I'm a little surprised by that. Yeah. Uh, for one, I think it's, it's overkill. Yeah. It's overexposure. But you had said that the other option was possibly based on Avatar, which was problematic in its own right, right? Yeah, well, the the weird thing is Cirque, for some reason, they have a path, you know, a set group of arenas when they're launching a new show that they follow. And oddly enough, one of their favorite arenas to sort of, you know, try out a new show in is up here in New England. It's the... DCU Center in Worcester, Massachusetts. And just this past December, Cirque just put on the road a show that they stage on ice. When they launched the Avatar show, they sent it out to arenas two and three years ago, they actually sent it to Worcester as well. I remember talking with the folks at Disney who were working on Avatar who were very concerned about the fact that here was this Avatar-themed arena show that wasn't doing all that well in North America. And it's like, how much are we spending on Pandora? Uh." So, yes, we get a Disney animation-themed show. The theater goes dark December 31st of this year. My understanding is they are going to be making some pretty elaborate changes to the physical plant, of, you know, the stage area the show is presented on. And that supposedly rehearsals begin this summer for a 2019 opening. That's a fast turnaround. But, yeah, they're going to need three to six months of preparation time before the thing actually launches, right? That's it exactly. But also, Disney just wants... The construction at Disney Springs to be done. We're in year three of the remodeling project. Or wait, no, year four? Yeah. Luckily, when they're working on the old Lanuba Theater, that will be in a fairly isolated corner. Right, it's the very far end. But at the same time, to once again be dealing now with the construction of the NBA thing. And the folks at Splitsville, they've been doing great business since they opened. But the notion of being next to a open construction pit isn't making them happy. Yeah, for the next 18 months, right? I mean, the noise alone is, uh, is a lot because you know, Splitsville does a lot of outdoor entertaining mm-hmm. 
at night. You know, they've got bands playing and whatnot. And to have that next to uh, Concrete Crusher, yeah, probably not the ambiance that uh, Splitsville wants. All right, Jim, let's move on into October then. For me, the big news here was we saw the opening of Grand Avenue at the studios mm-hmm. with the introduction of a uh, baseline tap house, a little bar serving uh, a little bit of food. Mm-hmm. Over at the studios. And to me, it's not in and of itself news, but you had mentioned that this is how Disney's prepping people to wait eight hours in line to get into Star Wars land when it's open. And that's really what the opening of Grand Avenue and the Baseline Tapas is. It's someplace for people to stand and get food to eat while they're getting ready to go into Star Wars land. That's the move, right? Well, if you think about it from a bookend point of view, you have Pizza Rizzo, which opened late last year, and now we have Baseline Typeline. And and in both cases, unlike Marmo Melrose, which is a sit-down restaurant, they expect you to be in there Mm -hmm. hour, hour and 15 grabbing a meal. In the case of both the Baseline, yes, you can linger over a drink, but this is really... You know, a tapas menu, the whole notion is you get a drink, you get something to nosh, and then you, you proceed on your way to Star Wars land. Likewise, over at Pizza Rizzo, you know, you grab a slice, you grab a drink, and you're wandering in the back door, and the resistance is recruiting you to go up against the Empire. But just the fact when you stand there and you see how wide that street is the stanchions for the queuing area that they're going to create for that space that will supposedly... It holds 1,500 people. Wow, really? Yeah. That's one of the reasons when this opens in 2019, and the Walt Disney World version will be opening later than the Disneyland version. If you want to get in there, you're going to want to be on property because coming in as a day guest. Get in line now. Yeah, right up front, especially that first couple of years. First couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jim, anything else for October the end? Well, we didn't talk. This is actually late September or October. Again, the, just to applaud the group for Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, the Monsters After Dark ride film only ran for six weeks. It kind of inspired by Haunted Mansion Holiday, but you know, much shorter run. And the fact that the attraction ran the standard drop profile mm-hmm. right up until dusk. And then what was amazing is that people would be in the queue and they would just sort of hold the queue outside and be able to transition individual rooms so that people who were finishing up the standard day ride, and then there'd be this slight pause and the people would enter the building and suddenly here it is, the monsters after dark lighting, decorations, the cast members are dressed differently. And the fact that they were able to pull this off is little or no impact on the overall guest experience. That's a real tribute to not only the designers of the attraction, but the Disneyland cast members who worked like absolute Trojans to make this as seamless and as quick as possible. I'm sure you know from the guest survey responses and what people from Touring Plant said, the Monsters After Dark profile was probably more popular than the six drop profiles they had during the day. Yeah, it was fantastically popular. Mm -hmm. And credit to them for doing the changeover that quickly. Which brings us to November. Right. That five-minute window where we go from Halloween to Christmas Disney. And I guess what's fascinating for me is Disney endlessly finding new ways to yet again rework their holidays. In fact, I, I remember when we were at the fan event that you pointed out the guest satisfier, how they, they were routing people into the kingdom for Mickey's Very Merry Rather than sending people straight up Main Street, USA, you notice that they're actually sort of directing the crowds behind Main Street. This was fascinating to me, and this was a big change from the previous year. Mm -hmm. The thing that they're doing in the parties now is giving guests an immediate 
opportunity of gratification. And by that, I mean this. You walk in and the first thing that happens is somebody hands you a bag and then somebody else hands you some candy. Yep. And that's important because if they're charging $120 for these tickets, the fact that you walk in and immediately you and your kids get a treat is huge in terms of the psychology of satisfaction. You start off on the right foot. Not only that, but you're walking uh, along those arcades behind Main Street, which means you don't have to fight the crowds that are being forced to leave the park. You get to the central hub on a walkway that's dedicated to you and to, to people at the party. I think it's a fascinating and very effective opening sequence. No, I totally agree. We are 40 years into these Mickey's Very Merry, and they're still finding ways to plus and change and finesse. It's very smart. I mean, if, I mean, there's a psychological component to that that somebody really had to think about. I'd be surprised if they actually didn't bring in a consultant on that one, that it's that sophisticated a thought. Well, yeah. I am hoping that if they're far enough along with construction of the new Main Street Theater, because that's going to be kind of a challenge to do that this coming year. What with Mickey's Not So Scary starts in August and you know they'll have to be far enough along not have a construction crane dangling overhead. Not going to be the best visuals, but yeah, they'll, uh, they'll get it done. Okay. Also, let's not forget, in November, we did our first ever Disney Dish live event at Coronado Springs, so thanks to our sponsor Storybook Destinations for that. That was a lot of fun. We walked around the Animal Kingdom, told stories about Pandora, we played a few games, we had lots of fun meets. It was, it was a great time. I have to, again, give you credit. The Jingle Cruise, where we packed the boat. That Honestly, <sighs> yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. is probably one of my favorite times at the Magic Kingdom. I never thought that would work, and that was so much fun. And to blow the mind of two Disney cast members like that, I loved how they reacted to us. That was more enjoyable than actually going on the ride. So It was a lot of fun. It was, it was definitely a great event. Yeah, and I loved doing uh, the Jingle Cruise, where we basically applauded and laughed at everything the, uh, the skipper said. It's definitely a different vibe when, uh, when everyone's in on the joke. Now, to change the subject here, though, we've been talking for 18 months now, at least, about the possible change out of the Three Caballeros Grand Tour for a Coco-themed redo of the boat ride at the Mexican Pavilion. Right. I have to tell folks that right now it's looking kind of iffy. Disney is keeping a very close eye on how Coco is doing at the box office, and it's not doing the numbers they had wanted. Stateside, Coco did it is earned $164 million domestic. To put this in perspective, Cars 3, when it came out this summer, which at this point is considered quite a, a disappointment from the folks at Pixar, that made $152 million. So the fact that you know there's only like $10 million separating the box offices of, of these two Pixar films, or it's a little concerning. Yeah. Critically acclaimed, though. I mean, it, it got great reviews. It got great reviews, and the folks at Imagineering are still hopeful that it will go forward. The problem is that when you compare... That box office to say Finding Dory. I mean, Finding Dory when it came out last year, it just stateside all by itself. It made four hundred eighty-six million dollars. I mean, literally half a billion dollars just in the states. And did it really? Yeah, and overseas five hundred forty-two million for a total of just over a billion dollars. I hate to say this, but when you look at Disney, just in the the past week announced that the studio made. Six billion dollars, and to date, the Last Jedi has made eight hundred million dollars worldwide so far, and it's only a week into its run. 
But a quarter of that came on the back of two Marvel movies, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and Thor Ragnarok. I mean, literally $1.6 billion. Yeah, that's amazing. There's a reason that you're seeing money funneled in, you know, for example, in the direction of putting the Guardians right into the Ellen place. Where is Coco? Again, at this point, they've kicked the can a little further down the road and want to see how when it comes out through Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment, how the Blu-ray, the DVD, and the, the digital download does. Got it. Now, Disney did add some De Los Muertos artifacts to the Mexico Pavilion. And we saw those, right, the, the, the entrance to the pyramid. Those are fascinating. Yeah, they have an amazing yeah. display that walks you through the entire holiday and the crafts and the traditions. I really personally enjoyed Coco. I think it's one of the best things that Pixar's done a long time. And Lee Unkridge and the folks who put that movie together are really to be applauded. But when it comes to the parks and resorts, it really is on the back of we're looking at the billion-dollar earners. Yeah, and that, that's the thing. I mean, if Star Wars is generating 10 times the box office revenue, then it's going to get 10 times the attention. There you go. I mean, that's, that's, what it comes that's down just to. how it works. So. All right, so uh, let's move on into December. Obviously, this is recent news. We've already talked about it, but uh, just to recap it, Disney buys Fox, mm-hmm. or at least the, the movie parts of Fox and the television stations. That was huge news for a variety of reasons, but Disney's basically picking up the parts of Hulu that it didn't control all the Fox stuff except for the news, all the movie stuff, and the television stations. What, what do you think the long-term impact of this is going to be on Disney? If we're talking parks and resorts, the Simpsons aren't going anywhere. The Simpsons are going to stay at Universal Studios. Likewise, Spider-Man Ride and the Hulk coaster over at Universal. The one little bend on that story is I, I heard that Hulu actually gives them, a, you know, now having the majority share, it does give them an interesting negotiating tour with Comcast. It does. We are so early into this deal that there's a lot of folks at Pixar, a lot of folks at Imagineering that are digging down into the catalogs of Fox properties. And it's sort of like, well, is there something that could translate over? I know we talked in the previous Disney Dish podcast about there's some concern going into the rebranding of Disney Hollywood Studios out ahead of the opening of Galaxy's right. Edge about, well, should we do something that represents the Fox component or should we just embrace Disney Fox Studios? And it's very much a work in progress, folks. We will know more about the integration of IPs and that sort of thing as the deal closes. But this is 12 months of figuring out what the redundancies are and getting governmental approval. So, And that's if it's fast-tracked. I've been told, really, given the size of the deal and that sort of thing, it's more likely it won't close for 18 months. So 2019. Yeah. Mid-2019. But on the other hand, I can tell you the folks who were working on DCA, in fact, that's supposedly one of the reasons why they fast-tracked the survey marking for Bugs Land at California. It's like they need a bigger canvas before this Marvel land that they're basically building on top of the old Disney Hollywood Studios backlot area at DCA because they now have a lot more characters to draw from. That'll be the thing. I think that five and ten years from now as Disney starts integrating more of these characters that they bought into the parks and they look at how much they save on licensing and things like that. It just gives them more opportunities to do more things. I, I'm a little concerned that we're not going to see organically grown characters from the parks. People like, you know, Figment and rides like Spaceship Earth that had no basis in films prior to coming into the parks. I think that's some of the best work that Disney's done. On the other hand, you know, who knows? If it's a, if it's a good story and it's a good ride, I can see it working almost anywhere. So 
We'll see. Not to say that Disney doesn't do this anymore. In fact, Mystic Manor for Hong Kong Disneyland shows that Disney can still do this, can create memorable characters that don't have a tie to a film. But that's not Bob Iger's version of Disney. When you spend $50.2 billion, and, and that's not including the debt that Disney had to service for the Fox thing, it's like, look, we need to make use of what we just bought. And you know, let's remember that one of the things that happened with, with feature animation is in the first three months after the, the Marvel deal, they, they turned to them and said, hey, we need to do something with this. And that's where Big Hero 6 came from. They drilled down to the library and found a property they could do something with. So, Oh, really? Was that it? Was that how it came up? Yeah. You talk with Don Hall, and he went through the entire Marvel catalog and came across this series of comic books that I think there had only been 12 of them, but here was this great story and something he could adapt for feature animation. And that's how we ended up with Big Hero 6. Didn't know that. All right. Let's call this our wrap-up show. And then uh, we promised, Jim, in, uh, in episode four <laughs> of our two-part series on Spectrum Magic, we will definitely give the end of the Spectrum Magic. Absolutely. Positively. Okay. Saga. All right, folks. You've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go on to your local New Year's Eve baby diaper and write a review of our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care.